This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. I just want to give a quick thanks to Euro Classics for sponsoring this episode. Euro Classics is all about collector cars, from servicing your new BMW M5 to prepping your Porsche for the racetrack to executing a total restoration on your favorite classic. They do it all from routine maintenance to performance upgrades to appraisals and everything in between. You can learn more about its owner, Dale Oaks, by listening to episode number 65 of this podcast. And you can find Euro Classics in the Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana service area and online at euroclassics.com. Classics, C-L-A-S-S-I-X dot com. Welcome back to the Collector Car Podcast. Today we are going to cover another 100 cars that changed the world. This time we're focusing on 1950s through the 1960s. So we're getting into the meat of some really amazing, great, wonderful cars. And then I believe I'll have one more episode that will cover 1970s through to the present. So this will encompass a total of 100 cars you can go back to previous episodes to catch up on the decades that you have missed all right so we are going we are going to start in 1950 with the nash rambler now this is from haggerty.com our friends at haggerty nash introduced a rambler in 1950 as its lowest price model at 1800 dollars which wasn't cheap by any means but buyers got a car that was loaded with standard equipment including a radio heater courtesy lights an electric clock, custom upholstery, wheel discs, and more. The Rambler was also the company's smallest model. In fact, its relative diminutive size with respect to the rest of the Nash lineup and indeed the entire American car market made it one of the first compact cars, which is why it is on this list. All right, next is the 1951 Chrysler Hemi. Now this is speaking more to the engine but it went into a lot of cars, and this is from our friends at MotorTrend.com. Chrysler's early Hemi grew out of experience gained during World War II with developing Hemi-head aircraft and tank engines for the war effort. After the war, Chrysler needed to remain competitive with the new Cadillac and Olds overhead valve V8, so it began developing brand new motors. Early testing of alternative head and valve layouts revealed that the hemispherical combustion chamber was superior to other designs. The result was the 1951 debut of the 331 cubic inch Chrysler Hemi. DeSoto and Dodge Hemis followed in 1952 and 1953 respectively. Each division's Hemi had a unique block, heads, and cylinder bore spacing. Virtually no internal parts interchanged between them. In the Chrysler line, 
The 331 grew to 354 cubic inches in 1956. And finally, using a raised deck block to 392 cubic inches in 1957 to 1958. In the process, hardcore racers quickly discovered the engine's potential. The Hemi's efficient combustion chambers responded well to the new high-octane gas and was unsurpassed while running on alcohol and later nitromethane, a legacy maintained by the Hemi's modern-day descendants. And you can still get a Hemi that says 392 on the shaker hood. All right, next in 1952 is the Bentley R-Type Continental. In 1952, cars that could hit a top speed of 115 miles per hour were uncommon. Cars that could cruise at 100 miles per hour with four occupants and luggage were unheard of until the R-Type Continental. Although only 208 were produced, the R-Type Continental created a template for Bentley Grand Touring that lasted decades. It even inspired the design team working on the first Continental GT 50 years later. And that is from BentleyMotors.com. In 1953, we had the first Chevrolet Corvette. The Chevrolet Corvette may become America's sports car, but its roots are surprisingly European. As American GIs returned from World War II, they were influenced by the MGs and other European sports cars that dotted the region's country roads and wanted something similar once they returned home. Famed designer Harley Earl implored General Motors to build a sports car to, to capitalize on this interest, and it began to take form as the 1951 Project Opal. The results were first shown at the 1953 Motorama as the EX-122, a hand-built pre-production prototype. The finished product was the first Corvette, a two-seat roadster with a gaping chrome grille, upbeat-looking single headlights, and a curved windshield. All 1953 Corvettes were white with red interior. The fiberglass reinforced plastic body was revolutionary for the time and set a precedent that GM would carry on with future Corvette bodies. Now this is from Haggerty. Also from Haggerty, we have the 1954 Mercedes-Benz 300 SL. In most cases, a road car comes first and a racing version follows, but for the Mercedes-Benz 300 SL, the radical gullwing door coupe that hit the market in 1954 was directly derived from the sports racing car that won the Carrera Panamericana and the 24-hour Le Mans in 1952. The road car that followed retained the racing's version, strong tubular frame with high sills necessitating the gullwing doors and featured fully independent suspension and a fuel-injected version of Mercedes-Benz's 3,000cc single overhead camshaft engine. The straight six was rated at 215 horsepower and would propel the car to speeds upwards of 160 miles per hour, making it one of the fastest production cars in the world upon introduction. The only transmission available was a four-speed manual and powerful drum brakes were fitted to each corner. Significant options included a more highly tuned engine, rudge knockoff wheels, and fitted luggage. The most coveted of all the production 300 SLs are the 29 aluminum coupes. That were made early in the production cycle. All right, the next one is from the automuseum.org, the 1955 Chevrolet V8. So again, we're talking about an engine that went into a bunch of cars. The 1955 Chevy is a classic and marked a turning point for Chevrolet as they introduced the first successful small block V8 engine. With a displacement of only 265 cubic inches, it still was one of the most powerful engines ever produced making up to 180 horsepower. Future variants of this engine 
with displacements of 283, 302, 350, and even 400 cubic inches have become legendary. Next, from MotorCities.org, the 1957 Chrysler. During the 1950s, the Chrysler Corporation had manufactured many great-looking vehicles for the consumer market. The late Virgil Exner Jr. was the corporate director of styling in 1957, and he rocked it. And he had, he had designed many great-looking cars and trucks for that model year. For 1957, the Chrysler line of newly designed cars offered a forward-thinking design with a light, clean design that many consumers really had enjoyed. More importantly, the new Chrysler models gave the company a competitive edge over other popular-selling vehicles at the time. The model years 1955-57 to 57 brought impressive sales gains to Chrysler, which was attributed to the great new styling features. Okay, next from our friends at Haggerty, it's the 1958 Ford Thunderbird. Now, this is interesting because the more iconic classic one in the collector car market is the first gen, the 55, 56, and 57 two-seat Thunderbird. Well, this is when they went big into a four-seater that actually outsold the two-seater. By 1957, the Ford Thunderbird was still well outpacing the Chevrolet Corvette in sales, and Ford executives, including Robert McNamara, wanted to push it even further. This was accomplished by leaning into T-Bird's true nature as a luxurious cruiser rather than a pure rather than the purer European sports car the Corvette was initially trying to emulate. One of the mandates for the 1958 Ford T-Bird was to make it a four-seater. The new Square Bird was built using unibody construction, making it the first Ford to employ this method along with Lincoln's of that year. It also brought full-size luxury features to a mid-size layout. This new design was almost a foot longer and 1,000 pounds heavier than its predecessor. So that is why it is on this list. All right, next from Haggerty as well is the 1959 Austin Mini. The Mini sedan can lay claim to be one of the most significant automobile designs of the 20th century. The simple design broke all the rules. What with its transverse mount, four-cylinder engine, front-wheel drive, transmission in the sump, a wheel at each corner, and suspension by simple rubber cones. Costing only $1,340, the 1959 Mini also offered surprising interior space at only 10 feet long, and its 33 horsepower, woo, 848cc engine could manage 40 miles per hour when driven carefully. In one step, the Mini had replaced every three-wheeled microcar as well as every motorcycle and sidecar with a real family sedan. It was a stroke of genius. Next, from our friends at Haggerty's, the 1959 Lotus Elite. When Lotus unveiled the Type 14 Elite at Earl's Court in 1957, it signaled a change. No longer would Lotus be seen as just a race and kick car manufacturer, but now also one that produced cutting-edge road cars. Lotus founder Colin Chapman felt that for this production car, traditional aluminum or steel construction would be too costly, so he designed an ingenious fiberglass monocoque body structure that comprised three fiberglass pieces with steel frame members and suspension pickup points actually embedded in the fiberglass itself. This is a car that many consider to be the most elegant, attractive, and important Lotus in the Mark's history. All right, from our friends at supercars.net, the next is the 1960 Ferrari 250 GT short wheelbase Spider California. This is one of my bucket cars, one of the most beautiful cars ever made. Short wheelbase or long wheelbase, I will take either one. 
In 1959, Ferrari debuted the shorter California Spider on their stiffer short wheelbase chassis. These cars were superior as they had disc brakes, a more powerful engine, and less bulk. Like the long wheelbase model that preceded it, the short wheelbase benefited from a competition-bred chassis and engine. The California Spider was motivated by U.S. distributor John von Neumann and Luigi Cinetti, who convinced Ferrari to create a performance convertible named after their best market, California. The California Spider emerged with supercar performance and became highly desirable due, due to its limited availability. Each car was special, too, and some examples came with competitive spec engines for the very, or the very rare factory hardtop. All right, next from our friends at Haggerty, the 1961 Jaguar E-Type. Legend has it that when it went on display for the first time at the Geneva Motor Show in 1961, none other than Enzo Ferrari remarked that the E-Type, known as the XKE in the U.S., was the most beautiful car he'd ever seen. And for your Jag fans out there, stay tuned because I'm going to have a Ferrari slash Jaguar t-shirt that you can have for yourself. Mr. Ferrari knew a pretty car when he saw one. He might have been one of the first to express the sentiment but an incalculable number of others have said virtually the same thing, and they're still saying it 50 years later. With a 0-60 to 60 time around 7 seconds and a 150 mile per hour top speed, the Series 1 E-Type was near the top of the early 1960s food chain and was indeed quicker than numerous sports cars with a much higher price tag. Alright, next from Haggerty's the 1961 Lincoln Continental. The 1961 Lincoln Continental was based on a stretch version of a proposed 1961 Thunderbird two-door hardtop that had been rejected as too classy and not sporty enough for the typical Thunderbird buyer. Huh, that's interesting. The 1958 recession and Edsel's debacle, meanwhile, had injured the Ford Motor Company overall. But while the four-seat Thunderbird was a relatively huge success, the Lincoln division was in danger of being culled. Designers and engineers worked hard at making a new, distinctive, and profitable Lincoln. They succeeded admirably with the 1961-1969 Continental. All right, next is one of my favorite cars, again from Haggerty, the 1962 Shelby Cobra. Carroll Shelby's 1962 Cobra represents the pinnacle of the Anglo-American sports car, which combined a classic aluminum roadster, in this case, cribbed from a 1950s Ferrari Barchetta, with a tube space frame and lightweight American V8 engine. Shelby's donor chassis came from the AC Ace, theretofore had utilized a pre-war BMW 2.0-liter six-cylinder engine, which was going out of production. Understanding that AC needed a replacement motor, Shelby tapped into his Ford connections to use their lightweight 260 cubic inch V8. In the process, Shelby managed to get both sides to agree that the resultant sports car would be manufactured under the Shelby name. The overall package was dynamite, weighing only 2,100 pounds, with a 260-horsepower engine made it to a four-speed transmission. Top speed was about 140 miles per hour, and 75 were built in 1962 and 1963 before the engine was replaced by Ford's 271-horsepower 289 V8 that could also be found in the Mustang and a souped-up version in the GT350s. In race prep guise, the engine generated up to 370 horsepower, and the cars were quite successful on the track. Between 1963 and 65, 580 Shelby 289 Cobras were sold, 
and the CSX 2000 series. Now, if you see one with the 3000 series, that's the big 427 engine cars. And then when you go to 4000 series and beyond, those are reproductions. Next, from Haggerty's, a 1963 Aston Martin DB5, one of the prettiest cars ever made. While the Aston Martin DB5 will forever be linked with James Bond, FYI, they just found the missing James Bond DB5 in, I think, Saudi Arabia this week. True enthusiasts understand the more lasting and inspiring impressions of the DB5 comes upon examining the car itself. This beautiful successor to the DB4 entered production in 1963 and is widely regarded as the pinnacle of Aston Martin's efforts during this era. Aston Martin is one of the premier British brands, and the DB5 is the brand's premier model. Few others, few other cars are capable to convey the sense of class, performance, and sophistication that a DB5 can, which solidifies the car's global appeal. All right, next, also from Haggerty. Actually, all the rest of these, I think, are from Haggerty. All right, next is the 1963 Corvettes. We had the 53, now we have the 63. The 1963 Corvette Stingray took the sports car world by storm. Derived from Bill Mitchell's 1957 SS Racer and XP720 prototype, it had hidden headlights, a knife-edge front, and horizontal rib round the car. New fastback coupe bodywork featured a split-back rear window and doors that cut into the roof. The frame was 4 inches shorter than the 1962 model, as well as lighter and stiffer. There would be no opening trunk lid until 1968. The 327 cubic inch V8 Chevy small block was carried over from 1962 with 250 horsepower up to 360 horsepower with the Rochester fuel injection. Top speed ranged from 118 to 150 miles an hour and 0 to 60 times from 9.1 to 5.8 seconds. 1963, of course, is the only year that you had the split window because nobody liked it and people actually cut it out and put in the 1964 window. But now everybody wants the 63s, including myself. They're pretty cool. All right, next is the 1963 Jeep Wagoneer. Willys always had some type of truck-based wagon in the post-war years, and because they sold reasonably well, a wagon was sure to be in the mix when Willys was rebranded as Jeep and introduced an all-new truck for 1963. In fact, wagon made up part of the name. The Jeep Wagoneer shared all the styling cues of its new staplemate Gladiator pickups, and Wagoneers featured either a traditional two- or a new-for-Jeep four-door body style. All of a sudden, the Chevrolet GMC Suburban and International Travel All had a new rival. Next is the 1964 Porsche 911. Under the internal type 901, Porsche developed a completely new GT car that was evolutionary of the 356, but with better visibility, more shoulder room, and an overhead cam 2-liter flat-six motor with about 40 more horsepower than a 356 Super. Early 911s had much of the vintage charm of a 356, including chrome trim inside and out. They also rusted with the same altricity as the 356 and were more tail-happy because of the increased power in skinny 165-15 tires. This tendency reached its apex with the 911S introduced in 1966. With 160 horsepower and a tiny tire contact patch, the early S could be a handful. It went away in the U.S. for the 1968 model year, only to return in 1969 with mechanical fuel injection. Of course, the 911 has to be one of the cars, top 100 cars that changed the world. All right, 1964, we have the Ford GT40. 
The Ford GT40 stands near, if not at, the pinnacle of collectible post-war American cars. The colorful stories and characters surrounding the model's development, the GT40 on-track excellence and execution of mission, and the car's purity all contribute to its larger-than-life persona. Motivated by Henry Ford II's unrelenting desire to beat Ferrari on the track, reportedly due to Enzo Ferrari jilting a Ford buyout offer, led to a partnership with Lola in 1963. The British race car manufacturer had already used a Ford V8 with some success in their GT, and prototyping resulted in a 4.2-liter mid-engine alloy V8 race car race coupe sheathed in a fiberglass body, debuting in April of 1964. You know, that 4.2 liters, the 289 Ford Mustang engine, also the one in the Cobra. The sophisticated car could exceed 200 miles an hour and was a sleek 40 inches tall, thus the 40 in the car's name. The GT40 showed promise on the track, but was ultimately too fragile to reliably compete. Then entered Carroll Shelby, and we know how well that went. All right, next is the 1964 Pontiac Tempest GTO. Yes, GTO was not a separate model at this time. Just as Ford was developing its Mustang for the famous 64 and a half April launch, the folks at GM were already delivering the car often credited with starting the muscle car craze. Launched in October of 1963, the GTO would evolve into one of the definitive American performance cars of the decade. The 1964 Pontiac GTO was based on the Tempest Le Mans and featured a 326 cubic inch V8. GM pulled out of racing in 1963 and Pontiac was stuck with an institutional limit of 330 cubic inches on mid-sized cars, but an option package for the Le Mans would change all that. All right, 1965, technically 1964 and a half, is the Ford Mustang. If the Volkswagen Beetle was the most significant car of the 20th century with 21.5 million sold, and the Ford Model T was second with 14.7 million produced, the Ford Mustang must occupy third place. For one thing, it's still in production in the 21st century with 9 million built to date, but it's also right up there with the other two in terms of cultural significance. Leia Coco's brainchild was a brilliant combination of humble Ford Falcon underpinnings with a long hood, short deck coupe that still looks just right. Introduced in April of 1964, actually April the 17th, as an early 1965 model, its European flair could be traced to designer Roy Lunn, who had worked for Aston Martin. The first prototype was built in 100 days in the summer of 1962. Iacocca's aim was a car that cost $2,500, weighed 2,500 pounds, and could carry four people. He got pretty close as a base six-cylinder hardtop coupe, three-speed manual gearbox cost $2,320 and weighed 2,449 pounds. It was based around a strong, lightweight unibody with multiple bracing, minimal bright work, and a European-style recessed 40 grill. I still love the Mustangs. I'll have another one at some point. All right, next is the 1967 Lamborghini Mura. So this is interesting. We just talked about the first quote-unquote muscle car, the GTO. Technically, I think it was the Delta 88. But let's say we just talked about the first muscle car and the GTO. Then we talked about the first pony car and the Mustang. Now we're going to talk about the first supercar, and the 1967 Lamborghini Mura. Few cars achieve legendary status, while even fewer continue to live up to it by every accepted measure more than four decades after their introduction. 
but the Lamborghini Miura is just such a car. This mid-engine coupe took Lamborghini from being an upstart company that challenged Ferrari with very competent GTs to a world-class supercar manufacturer that forced Ferrari and everyone else to rethink how they built road cars. Lamborghini gave a hint of what was to come at Turin in 1965 when it showed a rolling chassis that everyone was sure was going to be a race car, including its designer. In the following year, a finished car appeared at Geneva with coachwork that to this day is seen by many as Bertone's crowning achievement. All right, only five more cars to go in the 1960s here. Next is a 1968 BMW 2002. The 2002 is perhaps the most famous of BMW's new class line, and it revitalized the Bavarian's automaker's historically underwhelming international reputation. The world, was, the world was captivated by the 2002's attractive blend of power, agility, and style in addition to its reasonable price tag. 2002s were offered in two varieties in the U.S., the single-carbed, 100-horsepower-based 2002 and the uber-sporty 2002 TII. Both were powered by a 2-liter single-overhead cam i4, but the TII added mechanical fuel injection to ring out 130 horsepower. Other variants included the Cabriolet Targa, a 3-door touring model, a twin-carbureted TI, and a rear turbo, all intended for European consumption only. Those little turbos are $120,000, $130,000, now. They are expensive. All right, four more. The next one's a 1968 Dodge Charger. Dodge's big news for 1968 was the new Charger hardtop, a crisp redesign mostly remembered for the classic chase scene in Bullet and the orange number one generally from the popular television comedy The Dukes of Hazard. The 1968 Dodge Charger shape was one of the most elegant renditions of the popular Coke bottle wasp-waisted design and featured a slim full-width grille with hidden headlights, flying buttress at the rear, and a tunnel back window reminiscent of GM designs. Two rounded taillights on each side were recessed in a black panel. All right, three more. A 1968 Ferrari 365 GTB4 Daytona. Ferrari once again used the Paris show in 1968 to unveil its latest front-engine road car, the 365 GTB4 or Daytona, as it came to be later known. The Ferrari 365 Daytona had a 4.4-liter 4-cam V12 producing 352 horsepower initially, and like its 275 GTB predecessor, it had a Pininfarina-styled coachwork mounted on a steel tube frame as well as a rear-mounted 5-speed transaxle and independent suspension all around. All right, next is the 1968 Plymouth Roadrunner. Plymouth's boxy Belvedere GTX may have been late to the mid-sized muscle car market in 1967, but the division stole a march on everybody else in 1968 with the Roadrunner. This time, Plymouth got it right, putting a 335 horsepower, 383 cubic inch V8 engine with a 440 Super Commando heads and camshaft in a bare bones 3,000-pound two-door hardtop with a four-speed floor-shift synchro transmission. Base price was $2,870, skinned down to a rubber floor mat and non-pleated taxicab interior. A total of 30,000 buyers bought the coupe, and a further almost just over 15,000 stepped up for the two-door hardtop, which was added mid-year for a total of almost 45,000 roadrunners produced in 1968. 
Now, the last car for our 100 cars that changed the world, 1950s to 1960s, for the 1950s and the 1960s, is, this is a little bit of a surprise, the 1969 Jaguar XJ. Upon its introduction in 1968, the new Jaguar XJ6 replaced all the sedans which preceded it. The signature 4.2-liter double overhead cam six-cylinder engine delivered 180 horsepower and was matched with anti-dive suspension, power rack and pinion steering, power disc brakes, and either an automatic or manual four-speed transmission with overdrive. Inside, there were leather seats, walnut facade, and enough gauges for a small plane. The XJ6 was the last Jaguar designed by company founder William Lyons, and it was a fine balance of refinement, luxury, and performance. Handling was superb for a four-door sedan. Well, that is it. We will have one more installation. The cover... 1970s to the present. Thank you for joining me, and I will talk to all of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.